Sunday, and Sundays are my favorite day because I get to be here with you guys. I get to be around the body. I get to interact in the body. I get to see people that over the last four or five years I've come to know and care about and love so much. And it just happens this Sunday I have the privilege of being able to teach you and uh, being able to speak from God's Word. I realize many of you don't know me very well, and so I thought I'd let you into my life a little bit uh, through one of the most intimate ways, and that's my prayer life. There's two prayers that I pray most consistently in this life. The first is simply this, make me more like Christ. Please, Lord, I just want to be like Christ. Even like the song we were singing earlier, mold me and make me. You are the potter, I am the clay. I want to be more like Christ, and I just see that I'm not. That's the first prayer. I heard an old preacher say, or I remember listening to an older preacher say, I would trade all my prayers of make me a great preacher. And I would exchange them all in my old life for these prayers of make me more like Christ. I hope to not make that same mistake. The second prayer is this, Lord, do not let the gospel, do not let salvation, do not let the cross grow old or dull or dim to me. But Lord, let it be fresh, let it be new, let it be vibrant. Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. It's not much, but those are prayers I have to pray because I see that And I believe that if I did not, it would indeed grow old. Those prayers, as you know, especially the second one, embrace several scriptures and ideas in scriptures, but especially David's plea in Psalm 51, verse 12. Now, all of you know pretty well the background to this repentance psalm and a plea for forgiveness from a broken man's life. But let's quickly review. So if you'd turn with me to 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel which is right after 1 Samuel and somewhere before Revelation. <laughs> no, it's, it's right before 1 Kings. So if you go to Kings and go backwards, you'll, you'll find it. <clears throat> you'll find here in 2 Samuel 11 the story of David and Bathsheba. And you all know this, or chances are most of you know this pretty well, but for background's sake, we'll review it. We see that David is up on his roof. And David's going about his business, but he sees a beautiful lady, and she's bathing. And instead of fleeing from sexual immorality, David indulges. He has the power, and so he he takes that power, and uh, he gets what he wants. He indulges in sexual immorality. Lo and behold, Bathsheba gets pregnant. David wonders, what do I do? He sends for David. Or excuse me, David sends for Uriah. Uriah, come back from the battlefield where David should have been in the first place. He sends for Uriah. Uriah, come back. He figures if he can get Uriah home, maybe he can cover this up. He tries several different schemes, but soon we find that Uriah is more noble as a drunk man than David is as a sober one. And Uriah will not indulge, not well as men or army. So David finally says word, and he has Uriah killed. To send him up where the fighting is the fiercest and withdraw the troops. Uriah is killed. David shows no signs of mourning whatsoever. Finally, he takes Bathsheba as his wife. What I find interesting about this is that the Lord is conspicuously left out until the last verse of chapter 11. If you look there with me, way at the end, verse 27 of chapter 11. 
It says, David brought Bathsheba to his house. She became his wife, and they bore a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we see for the first time the Lord entering the scene. Now, no doubt he'd been intricately involved and he'd watched as this has unfolded, but we hear for the first time, and the thing that David has done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now we see God's intervention more clearly as he sends Nathan to David. And David, or excuse me, Nathan comes to David and he gives him the parable. You find that in verses 1 through 4. And it says at the end of that, David's anger burned. And rightly so. It's a parable. And then the words come in verse 7. Nathan gives him a parable, tells him about the evil man who stole the sheep. And now Nathan brings it forward and he says, You, you are that man. You are the man. Later on, he says, why have you so despised? Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Now, let this sink in a little bit. The familiarity with this story can breed a kind of nonchalantness about David's sin. We see what happened here. This isn't just a story. I mean, it is a story, but this happened. This was a historical event. And David has sinned. This kind of familiarity cannot breed contempt in us. It cannot breed a nonchalantness about sin. And it didn't breed a nonchalantness in David's heart. We see that. If you'll turn to uh, Psalm 51 with me, we'll pick up the story there. Psalm. Psalm 51. And we see here David spends the first part of this psalm in confession and a plea for pardon, unashamedly through the help of Nathan, realizing his sin and finally confessing it openly and dealing with it the way it ought to be dealt with. By the time we get to verse 12, we have the only proper response of any dealings with God. And that is a plea of worship and a plea of restoration after the sin. Allow me tonight to tell you about what I hope you take away. It's this. A frequent and a real remembrance of the bitterness and sorrow of sin and the preciousness of our own salvation leaves us with restored joy, a willing spirit, and lips that long to speak of him. Now many of you have walked with the Lord for much longer than I. And in fact, many of you have walked with the Lord longer than I've been alive. And I don't hope to teach you something entirely new tonight, but I do hope to recall to your mind something precious and old and dear. So look at me, or look with me at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David's joy of his salvation has been lost and vanquished. It's been crushed, buried under sin, the disastrous side effects of sin and its punishment from the Lord. He once drank deeply of this joy, his soul's deliverance. He now longed and mourned and mourned ever existing. Sin does that. It's not just joy quenching, it's life destroying. David described it as bone snapping even. He says this in Psalm 32, which is a parallel to this psalm written afterwards. 
when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away with the fervent heat of summer. My vitality was drained away with the fervent heat of summer. I grew up on a ranch, and I know that many of you come from agriculture background, but even if you don't, you can understand what's going on here. After you work in the heat after a long day, and you've sweated and you've worked, even just sitting in the sun after a long day, it's one thing to do that in Montana. It's another thing to do that in the Middle East, in Israel. David says, I live like that. I live. My, my vitality is drained away. I can barely get out of bed in the morning. The sin has so laid hold on me. David lived in unrepentant sin for almost a year. This is true bitterness. It's the same rebellion that made Peter weep bitterly. It's the same rebellion that made Judas die miserably. And men and women down through history mourn their existence. He begs, he begs to have something be restored, which rebellion has stolen and taken from him. He's very specific, restore to me, to me. This psalm is all about David, and yet not in a selfish way. In fact, eight times in the first five verses, he uses the word I, me, or my. The majority of the time, he's talking about his sin in light of God. Did Bathsheba sin? You can bet she did. Did others sin? Yes. They sinned as well. Yet a true and humble repentance focuses on the individual's sin in light of a holy God. But now he switches from sin's consequences to salvation's reward. Joy. What sort of joy? To the joy of a new life, new eyes, a new mind. The joy that salvation brings. Mark this. Salvation is not primarily about happiness. It's not primarily about joy. Salvation is primarily about righteousness. If you try to talk everyone into becoming a Christian because it's more of a preferable lifestyle or more palatable itinerary for your week, you'll be making a weak convert, if a convert at all. When the storms come and sea billows roll, it won't be well with their soul because they don't know of the hardships that a life in Christ brings. Life in Christ will yield storms. It will bring hardships. Anyone who desires a godly, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It demands a dying to Tanner and a living to Christ. A dying to Orion and a living to Christ. A dying to Colin and a living to Christ. A dying of Stephanie and a living to Christ. Have you died to yourself and do you live to Christ. Friends, it's not easy, this life in Christ, but it's good. Oh, it's oh so good. It's joyful, in fact. We of like precious faith who value God's word and his standards highly must not be afraid to talk of emotions. Joy is indeed a fruit of the Spirit. Yes, joy and joy unspeakable. It's a healthy thing. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Hard? Yes, very hard indeed. Joyful? Oh, unspeakably joyful. Unspeakably joyful. Reminds me of a song. Jeremy alluded to it earlier. This is my favorite hymn and speaks of the hardships of life. It was written by Henley Light, first in 1824. 
One of the verses says, Man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me, heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Oh, tis not in grief to harm thee, while thy love is left to me. Oh, twere not in joy to harm me, were that joy unmixed with thee. The writer says there is no joy if it's not mixed in God. There is no true joy if it's not mixed in God. He says this, Take my soul, thy full salvation. Rise or sin or fear and care. Joy, joy to find in every station. Something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Oh, what father's smile is thine. What a savior died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Can you turn back after you see the Lord's smile upon your life? Child of heaven, canst thou repine? No, by no means. Where did Henry find his joy, his delight? Think what spirit dwells within thee. What a father's smile is thine. But notice the proper order here. David's request for a restored joy comes after a plea for repentance and forgiveness. It comes after a purified heart. Joy is only delusional if it's out of order. Joy is artificial or plastic. It's manufactured if it doesn't come before repentance. Spurgeon says this, This joy comes not first but follows pardon and purity. Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. The world screams, this is true joy, that's true joy, this is true joy. No, that's wickedness and carnality disguised cleverly as joy and happiness. And many are led like an ox to the slaughter by it. True joy and real sin, true joy and real sin, Lawson says, are mutually exclusive. You cannot have real sin and true joy. True joy and real sin are mutually exclusive. Solomon writes in Proverbs, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. This is why we do not talk primarily about a pleasant life in Christ to an unbeliever. You preach of God. You preach of His ways. Brothers and sisters, beware. It does not take murder or adultery to rob you of joy. Only sin. Think of Peter's betrayal. This is true bitterness. And it was only in denial. And I'd like to use an illustration here. Jesus was an illustrator. and um, Illustrations always fall short, so they're a struggle. But, uh, <clears throat> but I'd like to use one anyway. See, sin doesn't perhaps taste. But if it did taste, we know what it would taste like. It would taste bitter. It would taste horrible. And I had a privilege of going over to Israel for a while. And while I was in Israel, I saw the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is, uh, I don't do anything with it quite yet. The Dead Sea is eight times saltier than the ocean. It's eight times saltier than the ocean. It's three times saltier than the Great Salt Lake. It's 27% mineral and salt. Go ahead and dip your tongue in that water from the Dead Sea. Yeah. I just want him to dip his tongue in it, not taste it. <laughs> I tried some of that water earlier. I just dipped my tongue in it, and it doesn't even taste salty. It stings your tongue. It burns of bitterness, like sin and deceit. 
Isaiah 55, 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Speaking of the freedom found in Christ in the gospel. The refreshing waters of life. Now, I don't want the illustration to become the point. It's simply an illustration. And sometimes illustrations are helpful. Psalms 13.5 says this, But I've trusted in your loving kindness, steadfast love, or I've trusted in your unfailing love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It's refreshing. Salvation is refreshing, just like pure, cool, cold water after the bitterness of sin. Being in college ministry, I have the privilege of being around new believers sometimes or being around people who have repented of their sin. Last Tuesday night, I was talking to a young man who has only been free from the, the wiles of drugs and weed, uh, marijuana, for a month. And he was intoxicated with the Word of God. He was in love with the Word of God as he'd repented of his sins and as he'd returned to God. <clears throat> there is joy, there's excitement there. Is it raw? Yes, it's very raw. But this joy is new and it's fresh and it's beautiful in their soul. A little bit sharp around the edges? Yes. Granted, a little bit raw? Yes. But joyful. Those of us who have been born again a little longer would do good to relearn this simple joy again. Now, I do not mean to confuse joy with immaturity or a childlike giggle. You can be around children and have a lot of fun with them, but they cannot know true joy unless it's in Christ. I do not mean to confuse joy with bouncing off the walls or anything like that. Joy looks differently in different people. But if you're really in Christ, there really is joy, for the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in God. Why? Why is he saying this? Why can he say, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in God. Why? Because he has clothed me, clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. <clears throat> as a bridegroom decks himself with garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Romans 8.1 screams that there's no condemnation. There's no punishment. There's nothing left for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to this quote. If any man, brethren, has taken a fall, carry that soul to Jesus. A prayer thou art called. The burden is lifted, heaven as you pray, and laid upon Jesus who has power to save. Look now, David is very specific in whom salvation is found. It comes from the Lord. He says, salvation is from the Lord. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Notice salvation is granted only as a precious gift of our Lord, not earned or merited. Romans 9.16 says this, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's like I told some of my brothers and sisters the other night, I want to ask you, excuse me, fully to understand that, but it should make you worship. It should make you grateful. It is dependent on God. It's His salvation. It's God's salvation. And He's made David all the more aware of that. But what is salvation? Salvation is a deliverance. Back in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David is in heavy grief 
He's perhaps realizing for the first time the magnitude of his sin. Perhaps he recalls what Ezekiel says, the soul that sins must die. He knows the only right punishment for him is death. He has committed a sin that is worthy of death. In fact, all sin is worthy of death. And he should be killed. But listen to Nathan's response. The Lord also has taken away your sin, and you shall not die. Salvation is not first and foremost about joy obtained through it. It is first and foremost about deliverance from the righteous wrath of God in his perfect and holy hatred against sin. But mark it, joy is a necessary fruit of salvation. This is entirely different from the confusing cry that consumes so many misled to ask God again to save them. Save me again, save me again. Maybe if I pray this prayer one more time, it'll work this time. Watch, he doesn't ask God for salvation again. Rather, he asks that the blessings of salvation would be restored. This is no rededication of David's life. It's no pity party or it's no unlawful demanding. It's almost like he's laying hold of what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He has to be sustained or kept or maintained. God, who has begun a good work in him, will be faithful to see it through. Spurgeon says this, The praying for joy and upholding go well together. It is all over with joy if the foot is not kept. On the other hand, joy is a very upholding thing, and it greatly aids holiness. Sustain in me a willing spirit. David asks him to work with his will, not against his will. The translators struggle here in this verse to know whether David intends the spirit to be a capital S. Is he talking about the Holy Spirit, or is he talking about his own spirit? Whatever the request, the application is really unchanged. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And David can't even say that. His spirit isn't willing. He wants his spirit or his will to cooperate with God's will, not to push or fudge against it. The word suggests an enthusiast and a volunteer with his eager and generous outlook. Psalms 40 verse 8 says this, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. Or your law is within my heart. Paul says his commands are not burdensome, but sometimes they feel that way, don't they? Especially when we've been in sin. Pastor Brian mentioned this morning, mentioned something very insightful that stuck with me, perhaps especially because I've been meditating on this. He said spiritual progress, spiritual progress is always linked with joy. He said one of the commentators said they're almost inseparable. Whenever you find spiritual progress, you'll find joy. David is seeking restoration here. And that restoration and spiritual progress must mean joy. Do you have joy, brothers and sisters? Do you have real joy, a fruit of salvation, a fruit of the Spirit? Are you growing in Christ-likeness? Psalms 54, verse 4 says this, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is my sustainer and the upholder of my soul. The Lord is the one who sustains He wanted to be obedient from here out. David wanted to have a submissive will. Let me be enslaved to the Holy Spirit, not thine own spirit. God, I want to be willing. I want to do this. I want to work with you. Sustain in me. Put in me. Keep in me a willing spirit. 
Let me be enslaved to my spirit. Let me be, my spirit be enslaved to your spirit rather than having me be enslaved to my flesh. David must have known this re- restoration and willingness because he records it in Psalms 27. Why don't you turn there with me? Go back just a few Psalms to Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is right after 26. Turn there with me. And look at verse 8. And listen what David writes here. This is, I mean, this is incredible. I remember the first time I read this, or at least the first time this really hit me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, Lord, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. I want that kind of willingness. David wants that kind of willingness. Now look at verse 4. And this is unbelievable. Anytime it speaks in absolutes, we ought to really watch and be careful. And David says this, one thing, one thing I've asked from the Lord, verse 4, one thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. This is what David wants. This is what he yearns for. This is what he needs only to be with God. One thing I've asked that my heart shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold his beauty, just to be with the Lord. Is this the cry of your heart? Is this the longing of your heart? But this willing spirit yields more than just joy. It yields lips that praise and worship and witness of God. I've noticed in my short life that the gospel yields many things, but two of them stick out to me. It's not just for salvation, it's also for sanctification. The gospel is so pertinent in everything that we do in our marriages, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our teaching, in our living, in our working out. Last week, Pastor Brian said, everything is sacred. Everything is sacred. Christ in everything. That's the first. The second is this. The deeper you dive, the deeper you plumb into the depths of the gospel, the less you can contain yourself. The more you get a hold of what the word's saying, of what Christ is saying, the less you can close your lips about it. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. Note here the close connection between a joyful faith and a contagious one. Note the connection between a happiness and more than that, a joyfulness overflowing in David's heart and an infectious faith. Do you have a joyfully infectious faith? David does not wish to make an exchange or a swapping or a trade. Lord, if you do this, I'll do that. Lord, if you perform this, I'll perform that. No, the Lord needs no favors. He does not accept them. He does not need man or woman to speak the gospel says in the last days there'll be three trumpets in heaven trumpeting around. There won't be anyone who doesn't know. We're already without excuse, but he says he can make the rocks crowd and worship him. And yet he uses men and women. He uses broken people restored in Christ to speak of his gospel. 
It's a natural outpouring of a forgiven man rejoicing in the truth of God's ways. Sometimes the best firemen are those who have been saved from the fire themselves. Sometimes those who have been closest to the flames are most willing to speak about the fire. Jesus says to Peter in Luke 22:32, "But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again or when you have repented, strengthen your brothers." After Peter falls and after he denies the Lord three times, Jesus says, "After that, turn and strengthen your brothers. After I have restored you, go." Sometimes God uses the most vile of the world to speak of sin, salvation, perhaps because their sin has been made more apparent to them, but they're no more vile or close to hell than the next. Everyone, everyone who's a believer has been saved from their sin, from God's judgment, and there's no condemnation. Psalm 66, verse 16, David must have had it down later. He says this, Come and hear, all you who fear God. Come and hear, all who fear God, and I will tell you what He has done for my soul. Anyone who fears God, come, and I'll tell you willingly what He's done. He's restored me. He's made me new. He's made me a new person. What a beautiful truth. What a special thing. I will teach them what? Your ways. I will teach them your ways. He does not say, I'll teach them this or I'll teach them that. He says specifically, I'll teach them your ways. The gospel is God. The gospel is this, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. The gospel starts with God and it ends with God. In Piper's book called God is the Gospel or The Gospel is God, he writes this None of Christ's gospel deeds and none of our gospel blessings are good news except as means of seeing and savoring the glory of Christ. Forgiveness is good news because it opens the way to the enjoyment of God Himself. Justification is good news because it wins access to the presence and pleasures of God himself. Eternal life is good news because it, because it becomes the everlasting enjoyment of Christ. Salvation isn't good news primarily because of streets of gold and gates of pearl. Salvation is primarily good news because of Christ, because of God. When we go to heaven, I'd speak too much into this because I don't but I I really believe we're going to be so enamored with Christ we're not going to care about so much about the golden streets or this or that salvation is primarily joyful it is primarily good because it is our pathway to God we are no longer enemies with God but we are friends it is common I will grant in my own heart as a selfish creature to make the gospel about me myself and I the gospel is God it starts with God and it ends with God and we are fortunate enough to be included in it perhaps only at times to be reminded of our utter helplessness and rebellion and then to be reminded in our role of repentance and faith in Christ but we tell others about but when we tell others about Jesus when we teach transgressors his ways it feeds off the backdrop of God he says now sinners will be converted to you no born again christian can rightly be called a sinner do you know that if you've been born again, if you've been made new in Christ, you're not by character. You're not characterized by sin. You are now characterized by righteousness. It's not that you never sin, but you can no longer rightly be called a sinner. David was preaching to an audience that, that was not foreign to him. This would have invoked great compassion, great kindness in David. That's why in Psalms 32 he says, 
How blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven and in whose name iniquity is not imputed. Psalms 34.8 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You can begin to see why David would write these things, can't you? Because he's been restored. He's come out of sin. God has delivered him. He's been made new. He's been restored. He's been restored. We sang about revival in the first song. Something I've prayed. And I think it fits well with this. Listen to the old hymn. Lord, bring revival to my heart. Come down with quickening power. Lord, give me strength I need to carry on this very hour. My heart is faint. My flesh is weak. Come, Lord Jesus, send thy spirit. Lord, restore the joy of salvation unto me. Lord, bring revival to the church, for thou professing be. Thou art many here within our midst who are still strangers unto thee. They are bound in garments of the grave. Call them forth from death to new life. Lord, revive the dead among us. Call them by name. A frequent and a real remembrance of the bitterness and sorrow of sin and the preciousness of our own salvation leaves us with restored joy, a willing spirit, and lips that long to speak of Christ. He cannot help but worship when you're exposed to the preciousness of these truths. Not because of me, not because of the pew that you sit in, not because of where you, but because of God, because of Christ. Because if you've been made new, you've been made to worship. You've been created to ascribe glory to Him. And if you're here tonight without Christ, you, can help, you can't help but mourn as I talk about these things. You have no joy to be restored to you. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to weeping because you have not Christ. There is no restoration. There's been no new birth. The divide is sharp. It's black and white. And your call is to repent and believe and to find true joy in Christ. Realize your sin and turn to Christ. If you're actively involved as, as in sin as a believer, God will either discipline you and bring you out and He'll restore His child. Or if you can continue in sin, unrepentant and undisciplined, be very afraid. Discipline is a great sign that the Lord is working in your life. That He cares to call His child out of sin just like a loving father to His children. Amen. If you're growing in grace and knowledge, rejoice. Rejoice again in the joy of the Lord's great salvation. If you're in deep sin as a believer, repent. Repent and ask for restoration. Follow David's model here. David was deep in sin. If you're deep in sin as a believer, come out of it. Turn to Christ. Confess your sin and return to Him. Ask that your joy would be restored. Lord, restore unto us here, the joy of our salvation. This message could be called a joyful restoration. Lord, restore unto Tanner. Lord, restore unto you the joy of your salvation. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, hast died, has died for me. He's died for you. What a beautiful, what a beautiful truth. What a beautiful thing. I want to give you a minute just to reflect on these things. So often we get out and we talk about the weather and the, the work and all kinds of different things, and it's good to fellowship with the body. But take a minute to ask yourself, bow your heads and ask of the Lord, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Where does your soul sit with God? 
Have you been made new? Have you been born again in the first place? And if you have, ask that the Lord would restore to you your joy. Ask that he would make you joyful, that the fruit of the Spirit would be joy, and that your lips would speak openly of him. Lord, we delight so, so much in these precious old truths. Lord, restore unto us the joy of our salvation and help us to teach transgressors your ways and would sinners be converted to you. Lord, would we be in a place where we can't help but speak of you as we've all been born in that pit and now been removed of it. Lord, would we pull others by your strength, by your spirit out. Lord, would you use us Would you use us, Lord, work even in spite of us at times. Help us to speak of you often, Lord, to speak the true gospel with urgency. Urgency with fervency, with great love and compassion for those who are lost, Lord. We pray these things only in the precious name of Christ. Amen.